After the sermon, we will respond to the message we've heard by praising him with the singing of Psalm 111, stanzas 1, 2, and 5. Let's turn to our text, which is taken from Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13a. It's actually, I'll just read all of verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The sermon I'm reading this morning is from the hand of Reverend C. Bauman. He read this in the Free Reformed Church of Kelmscott, Western Australia, in a New Year's Eve service at the conclusion of 1997. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, this morning, as we hear this sermon, we will reflect on the past year. As we reflect, we try to make up a balance. We try to pass some sort of judgment on it to determine for us whether it was a good year or not. As it turns out, in the course of the year, our lives could continue. We had food and drink. We received health and strength. We could work and study. So we could say, yes, the past year was a good year. But really, brothers and sisters, was the life that we received all good? What was the life we received all good for? It's true that we lived in this past year, but some of us had lost loved ones to death. There were a profession of faith this past year, but there were also those who broke with the church and of the faith. There was catechism instruction and Bible study clubs, but there were also those who didn't attend. Good financial deals were made of, and various of us prospered, but there were also those of us that lost much. There has been happiness in the families on account of weddings, births, and anniversaries, but there were also those in our midst who struggled with much in the family with tension, illness, and strife. In the course of the past year, we experienced what the preacher of Ecclesiastes has written. There is a time to be born and a time to die, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose. Verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 2. And but really, beloved, what has it all been good for? Why have we experienced both birth and death, financial gain and financial loss, joy and strife, love and hate. Nothing happens by chance. That's a given given to us in Holy Scripture. Instead, it all comes from the sovereign and gracious hand of our covenant God. But why? Why have the difficulties of the year, what have they been good for? Why were we confronted with both health and handicap? Why were we confronted with both profession of faith and withdrawal? Why? To get a handle on this evening's events, or this morning's events of, of the past year, we listen to God's word as it comes to us in the concluding word of the preacher's book, Ecclesiastes. I summarize the sermon with this theme. The conclusion of the year is, fear God and keep his commandments. In the first place, we're going to look at what does the preacher mean with this conclusion? And in the second place, why does the preacher come with this conclusion? The author of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, commonly known as the preacher, had been busy writing this book. In the passage from which our text is taken, the preacher draws together the conclusion that, he says, flows out of the material he set forth in his book. And what conclusion is this? Verse 13, fear God and keep his commandments. See there the preacher's sum of all the matters he's discussed in this book. Fear God and keep his commandments. We're familiar with these words. 
Time and time again, we're told that we are to keep God's commandments, and somehow it's not something we enjoy being told. For one thing, it means that we cannot do what we like to do. That hardly agrees with our nature. More, we try to do what God, we try to do what the Lord wants us to do, and to our deep disgust, we discover time and time again that no, we cannot do what God wants of us. We fail all too often. Now, the preacher would tie up his whole book with the instruction we hear so often, keep God's commandments. We try so hard, but we cannot do it. And we're sure, instead of hearing this word, we'd rather hear the gospel. Fear God and keep his commandments, says the preacher. What might the preacher mean with these words, fear God? Let it be clear to us, beloved, that the words fear God do not instruct us to be afraid of God in the sense that you better obey God's commandments, otherwise God will punish you. To fear God is actually an instruction to stand in awe of God. I draw your attention here to Israel crossing the Red Sea. Once God had led Israel through the sea on dry foot to the other side, and then drowned the stubborn Pharaoh and his army in the sea, we read this response from the people in Exodus 14, verse 31. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, so the people feared the Lord. This fear was not panic or horror or terror of God. This fear was rather awe, respect, and reverence for God. On the far banks of the Red Sea, the people did not try to hide from God in dread of his presence. On the far banks of the sea, they rather stood in amazement at the wonderful things that the Lord, in wisdom, had done for their redemption. This amazement is pointed up so emphatically in the song in which the people sang on the far banks of the Red Sea. From Exodus 15, verse 1, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider, he has plunged into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. I trust it's clear. Fear of God does not mean dread, terror. Here, fear of God is adoration, awe for a God who could accomplish such wonders. This fear of God, though, can never stand by itself. To stand in such awe of such a God, to respect this God highly on account of what he'd done, implies automatically that we obey his commands. To have thoughts of God, to marvel at his greatness, his power, his mercy, his kindness, to stand in awe of this God on account of his works for us implies that one has appreciation too for his instructions. It is certainly a contradiction to fear God on one hand and then to disregard his commands on the other. So it is in the law that God gave to Israel at Mount Sinai. He repeatedly motivated his demand for obedience by reminding Israel that they were to fear him. Consider, for example, his word from Leviticus 19. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Verse 14. To curse the deaf or to put a stumbling block before the blind. These are the kind of things you can get away with. Because the deaf cannot hear the curse, nor can the blind see you put a stumbling block in his path. But reverence for God and what God has done for Israel in making them, his covenant people, was to lead to a lifestyle of obedience, of readily doing whatever it was that the Lord wanted his people to do, whether the blind or deaf would notice it or not. Fear of God, then, and keeping his commandments are not two separate concepts. These two belong together, flow from one another. 
Together, these two notions describe a lifestyle in which reverence for God is demonstrated by obedience to his commands. In fact, this reverence is demonstrated by obedience permeates into every corner of life. Yes, it determines lifestyle down to the finest details of one's existence. To know oneself to be a sinner, damned under the righteous judgment of holy God, and nevertheless forgiven by this God in the blood of Jesus Christ, leads to the deepest awe for God, for such a wonderful saving work, an awe for God that lays the groundwork for a life permeated with hearty thanksgiving on account of his grace in Jesus Christ. Here, in truth, a lifestyle that has God in the center of it, of one's complete existence, a lifestyle that readily and cheerfully does what the Lord wishes down to the smallest detail of life. That, says the preacher in our text, is the way that every person should live. This is what life is all about. To be honest, this is not new material for us. In the course of the past year, the word of life has, by the grace of God, been heard in our midst many times. Through the preaching on Sunday, through catechism instruction through the week, and through Bible studies done at study clubs, and the scripture reading done in your home. We've been told so pointedly in the course of the year just what it is that the Lord God has done for us sinners. Though so deserving of eternal punishment from holy God on account of our fall into sin, on account also of our daily sins, the Lord nevertheless has had deep compassion on the creature he has made in the beginning. And so was pleased to send his only son to earth with instructions to atone for our sins. That is the riches of the gospel as it is laid out so pointedly again before us. We know that we have heard it so often this year that such grace for God, for sinners, but we cannot move the regenerate sinner to awe for God. What a God that he should do so much for the unworthy. So it was in the course of this year that we sung his praise. We delighted in his goodness and we marveled that he should do so much for sinners as we are. And that, beloved, is nothing else what the preacher calls in our text the fear of God. In truth, we are to fear our God. This is not at all a new instruction for us. In the course of the year, we've heard it so much that it was calculated to move us to fear God and to stand in awe of him. And it was told to us too, time and time again in the public preaching and in our private Bible study, that this awe for God was to move us to lives of grateful obedience to God's commands. God, he is, and that is why we are to do what he in scripture tells us to do. So also the matter of keeping his commandments is not a new thing. In fact, the words of our text sum up all the preaching and instruction we've heard in the course of the past year. Fear God and keep his commandments. Offer God and so a ready, ready obedience to his commands. Behold, there in a nutshell, all we've been taught in this past year about the Lord and his service. The instruction of the year is the same as the conclusion of the preacher. And now we'll go on to our second point. Why does the preacher come to this conclusion? The question is important simply because the instruction of the year turns out to be the same as the conclusion of the preacher. To ask the question differently 
Why did the instruction we received in the past year have to be that we should fear God and keep his commandments? I draw to your attention, brothers and sisters, that the investigations in which the preacher had considered in the course of his book are not at all strange to us. In point of fact, this is something that we need to note. So many of us have performed the same investigations in the course of the past year. In chapter 2, the preacher tells us how he sought to make the most out of life. He made up his mind to enjoy life, so he built for himself big house, big houses in fact, established gardens and orchards around his house, made a pool, hired staff to look after his estates. He brought in singers. Nowadays, we would say he played whatever music his heart desired. He brought in dancers and organized for himself numerous concubines. We would say that he watched late night movies or erotic videos or his internet connection to get sex online. He established large herds and flocks, gathered up much gold and silver. We might say he invested in stocks and bonds, purchased another house and bought himself a boat. And really, brothers and sisters, none of this is strange to us. We have tried so much of the same in the course of the past year. No, we may not have gone to the same scale the preacher tried, but through the last year we tried to build up for ourselves a house to be proud of. We've worked to establish gardens and lawns. We've piped music. We've piped into our lives the music of our taste. We've brought dancers and entertainers into our home. And yes, in subtle ways, we've also brought into our lives various concubines. In a word, the past year, we've sought, as the preacher did long ago, to make the most of this life, to enjoy what there was to enjoy. But the preacher, brothers and sisters, passed years ago an evaluation of his efforts. He said of all he tried to do to enjoy this life to the full, this was also vanity, chapter 2, verse 1. That is a judgment we may find disappointing. After all, we've enjoyed the good things of this life in the past year. Why is it then that the preacher judged his life, full of the good things it was, to be vanity and a grasping for the wind? He judged it to be vanity, beloved, because the wise and the fool, the rich and the poor, all alike, must die, chapter 2, verse 16. Death, that says the preacher, is the lot of all mankind, whether a princess or street urchin, whether wise or foolish, whether you've enjoyed life or not, all alike must die. And when one dies, it makes no difference whether you are rich or poor, whether you are wise or foolish, whether you had enjoyed life or not, for at death all these things fall into a big hole, and all that's left is that you stand before your maker with empty hands. Death, the preacher knows, is the great equalizer. At death, kings and paupers, the educated and the feeble-minded, the wise and the foolish all stand equally before their one creator, and none has an advantage over the other. That is why the preacher says there is no real gain in building up big houses, in gathering many riches, enjoying many women, in piping in all kinds of music. Yes, to the human flesh, these things may seem attractive for a while, but in the long term, when death comes to take you, you must stand before all your maker, and this enjoyment helps not one ounce. It is all vanity and a grasping after the wind. So it too, beloved, that the preacher writes off squabbling and bickering and pursuing one's own rights with so much vanity and in pursuit of wind. 
One can stew on why I was sacked and he was promoted, why I was married and the other remained single, why I had this experience in my youth and another had that. And so one can be busy with so many things of this life. But the preacher knows that all this sorrow and sickness and anger, chapter 5, verse 17, is vanity only. It is a striving after the wind, a senseless effort, for death comes to one and all. And on that day, all these concerns that now obsesses the mind fall into a big empty hole. Yet we stew on so many wrongs of the past. Pursue our own rights is something we've all done in the past year. We might, might not like to hear it from the preacher in his evaluation of the sense of this stewing and the pursuit of our own perceived rights, but we do well to hear it. Being angry because of what happened in the past, holding grudges and resentment, seeking answers is a grasping for the wind, all vanity. For death comes to one and all, and that, uh, then all that energy and effort in trying to right the wrongs done to us in the past help us nothing anymore. For with death we stand empty before the judgment seat of God. What does it all amount to then? Chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. It's the theme of this book. This life by itself, spiced up with all the pleasures and wealth, as you will, has no sense. All is vanity. See there the evaluation of the preacher on all we try to accomplish in this life. And lest anyone, beloved, is tempted to say that the preacher could be wrong, that in our own efforts of the past year, or years for that matter, per prove a different result, let it be known that the preacher was moved by God himself to utter this judgment on life as it meets the eyes. In the word of verse 10, what was written was upright, words of truth. Pursuing wealth, pursuing pleasure, pursuing answers. God himself moved the preacher of Ecclesiastes to judge it all vanity in a grasping for the wind. And so it is, beloved, that we can come to understand the reason why the preacher comes with the instruction of our text. If life, as it meets the eye, is inherently futile, if amassing wealth and pursuing pleasure and having fun is ultimately vanity because we must all die and stand before the judgment seat of God, then the conclusion of the whole thing is rather obvious. Fear God and keep his commandments. For to fear God and to keep his commandments in this life makes one able to stand before God in the judgment at death. To stand in awe of this God in life and to marvel at his saving grace in Jesus Christ and so also gladly keep his good instructions day by day. That prepares one well for the day of death. This adoration of God today enables one to stand in judgment tomorrow and to be welcomed into God's kingdom and glory. And now we come back to ourselves in this life as we've lived it in the past year. The sum of the preacher's instructions was that the need to fear God and keep his commandment live that godly lifestyle that flows from adoration of God's saving work. The sum of the year has been the same in the preaching and in the Bible studies, in our conversations in, in, at home and in our lessons at school. It has been driven home for us to stand in awe of God and keeping his commandments was so necessary that this is what life was all about. But at the end of the year, beloved, we need to realize that the Lord was pleased to drive home to us the truth of our text in this event that have confronted us in this year. Church discipline had to be exercised for the benefit of various people this year. Why? 
because these brothers and sisters did not wish to believe the inspired instruction of the preacher. These members thought to enjoy this life for what it was. They saw no need to fear God and to keep his commandments in their concrete circumstances. These members, unless they repent, cannot stand in judgment. They shall experience their own eternal hurt. Unless God yet works repentance, that life lived for itself was indeed vain, a grasping for the wind. Herein we're taught not to go and do likewise. Herein we're taught just how vain life lived for itself really is. In the course of the year, death has taken many from our town, country, and world. And some have come within a whisker of death, also through accidents or health problems. The preacher would have us know, as the Bible also says elsewhere, that all the pleasure the dead had in this life, all they decided to enjoy and to do, helped those who died not a thing once they had to appear before the throne of their maker. At death, whatever they possessed was taken from them, and they had to appear empty before the Lord. And God justly brought them into, into judgment everything that they did, be it secret or open, be it good or or evil. What made the deceased stand or fall before that judgment seat was the matter of whether or not they feared God, were filled with awe for him on account of his saving work in Jesus Christ, an awe that in turn determined the way they lived. For such fear of God is part and parcel of true faith. It was the Lord who confronted us as a congregation with spiritual death and physical death, with coffins and church discipline. In doing so, the Lord confronted us in the past year with the lesson the preacher also learned. Concentrating on developing this earthly life for the sake of this earthly life makes no sense. It is vanity and a grasping for the wind. God himself has reached into our lives to teach us in no uncertain terms that this is not what life is about. Life is instead about God, fearing him, praising him, and living for him. And now why, brothers and sisters, has the Lord given this pointed instruction to us this year? Why have we needed it? it? For this reason, beloved, our God would have each of us learn more and more the lessons of our text. Confronted as we were with the word of God in the preaching and with the deeds of God in the discipline and the deaths that came our way this year, now only to mention these, we are compelled to learn and acknowledge that life itself is more than music and pleasure more than courting and eating, more than houses and money. The very fact that in the course of the year we have pursued money and houses, eating and courting, pleasure and music, has made it necessary that we learn the lesson of our text anew. Sin has so remained in us in the past year, and that we need to be told in uncertain terms through word and deed that we are not on earth for ourselves, but rather in order to adore God and so keep his commandments. All that happened to us in this past year came our way for that purpose. And no, beloved, God would not impress this lesson on us again in the year past, both in the preaching of his word and in the deeds he's done in our midst. It is not cause for us to despair. In his concern for the church of all ages, the Lord moved the preacher to investigate life and come up with this inspired conclusion and include that in this book in the Bible. In his concern for us today, the Lord sees to it that we, as sinful as we remain, 
learn the lessons of Ecclesiastes. Here is not cause for despair. Here is reason for deep gratitude. His mercy over us is so unending. And so it is, beloved, that as we say farewell to the past year and welcome another, may we be thankful, may we be thankful for the year that has passed, despite all the difficulties that the Father and wisdom has sent our way. At the same time, we may greet the coming year with eagerness, determined again to live this life fully to his praise and glory, convinced also that God, who showed us great care in the past, will also show us great care in the future. Amen.